Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. A young pastor named William, not this William, sat in a meeting of Baptist ministers in England in 1787. He'd been chosen to present a topic of discussion for mostly for the mostly older clergymen, older clergymen, okay. But he was unsure of how well his ideas would be accepted. His topic was missions. The more he'd read the Bible, the more he'd become convinced that God expected Christians to share their gospel message with others even people far across the ocean in near newly discovered lands. He knew that this was not a popular view at that time. Most ministers believed that Jesus had given the task of sharing the gospel message to his 12 disciples, and that when they died, so did the job itself. Now, the ministers reasoned, no one was required to share his or her faith, especially not in dangerous, unknown regions. And so, there were almost no missionaries. William was nervous as he stood. He began, I would like to discuss the idea that when Jesus Christ gave the command to his disciples to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, he meant it to include not just his disciples who were alive at that time, but all who would follow him from then on. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. When God chooses to win the heathen, he will do it without your help or ours. (laughs) The senior reverend's rebuke was intended to stop William from considering a Christian's role in evangelizing the world. But instead, it encouraged him. The more he thought about it, the more he studied the Bible to find the truth. He took careful notes. Before long, the notes turned into an essay, and the essay turned into a manuscript for a book. William called the book An Enquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That's the shortened version of the title. It had just five chapters. The first chapter made it clear that the Great Commission, Matthew Matthew 28, 19 and 20, still applies to Jesus' disciples today. The second chapter summarized the church's mission outreach activity, starting with Acts. You know what we've been studying here? Up to his present day, the third chapter presented the current status of global global evangelization (laughs) at that time. I have a large map of this on my wall in my office. The fourth chapter described what a missions outreach in a foreign country might look like, including its dangers and difficulties. And the last chapter called for Christians to create and financially support mission organizations. That's the means in the title, remember? He said uh, it was part of the long, long title of his book, but the means are mission organizations in order to fulfill the Great Commission. His book was the most well-researched Christian paper written up to that point in time. And it was finally published five years later. William's full name was William Carey. Today he's recognized as the father of Protestant missions. 
over the next 40 years as a missionary to India, he lived out the motto that he's so well known for. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it that we can go to when we, when we don't know what to do. Um, I thank you for um, your word that you're going to reveal to us now. And I pray that we can understand better, know you better because of what it says. Speak through me. Speak to us through your word. Don't let us be distracted by the worries of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we are studying Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Just a review, Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Antioch in Syria. They'd returned there from what we call Paul's first missionary journey in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. They were on what we might call a furlough. They'd been telling the church about all the ways that God had used them and their great successes in sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. So, verse 1. Some, may, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Wait, some men? Who, who were these guys? They were from Judea, probably Jerusalem. Did the apostles in Jerusalem send them? No, no. A little later, in response to this incident, the apostles and elders sent a letter back to the church in Antioch, where they said in verse 24, We've heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have been disturbed you with their words. So yeah, th- these guys were not, they came on their own accord. So they weren't sent by the church in Jerusalem. They might be what Paul calls the false brethren in Galatians 2.4, where he says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ. So when it says... So when it says, it began teaching the brethren, who are they teaching? Brethren's just a Christian-y word for Christian believers in Antioch, most of whom were Gentiles. In other words, they were not Jewish. So what were these guys teaching? Okay, so back to verse 1. So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were telling the Gentile believers that in order to really be saved, they had to be circumcised. What? Huh? They were saying that faith in Jesus wasn't enough to save them. That they hadn't really been saved, but they needed to follow the entire Old Testament law. In other words, they needed to become Jews first. Circumcision is just a symbol for keeping the whole law of Moses. As Paul says in Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under, the obliga- under obligation to keep the whole law. It just was a symbol. They were really saying, they've got to become Jews or they can't be believers. They're not really saved. So there's my first point. It is critical to compare any teaching you hear with Scripture. When you hear something new, go to Scripture. How does it compare? This is why we put so many Scripture references in our messages to support what we're saying and to make it easier to verify the truth of it. In this case, as we'll see, these, these legalists, or Judaizers as they're called, were teaching that it wasn't enough to believe the gospel. They taught that you still had to obey the law 
in order to be saved. That's just wrong. It doesn't jibe with what Scripture says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not, a result, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's grace through faith that saves us, not works of the law, to try to keep the law. It's no surprise then that Paul and Barnabas, as leaders, heard what these men are teaching and stepped in to correct them. Verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So it's part of the job of church leaders to make sure the people of God are not being misled. In fact, God holds us accountable for that. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. But why should these guys go up to Jerusalem? Was it to find out who is right here or to settle the argument or to have a congregational vote? No. (laughs) It was to find the source of this wrong teaching and to nip it in the bud and to make sure that the apostles and elders were on the same page as Paul and Barnabas and the Lord. Verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So this is about a 250-mile trip. It's not a small deal. It would take them at least a month. And as they went, they did get what I like to call guest appearances at mission moments for each church they came to. And even though most of the Christians they met were Jewish, these guys were really excited to hear what God was doing with the Gentiles. So that's my second point. Missionary reports can bring great joy to believers. <laughs> why is that? Why, does it, why is it important to do that? Well, G- Jesus gave an example of the joy, of that kind of joy. In Luke 15, verses 4 to 7, he's speaking, Jesus speaking. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner than that repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's, it's exciting to hear what God is doing. In verse 4, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Again, it's exciting to hear how God is working in the world, changing people's lives, using ordinary people for His glory. I mean, that's why we have our missions moments here. Another way you can learn about this stuff is by reading missionary biographies. I have a few here. William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Cameron Townsend, Gladys Aylward. These are all... Lottie Moon, you might have heard of. Jim Elliott. They've got bunches of these things. These are just a few. I like these particular missionary biographies because they're from YWAM Publishing, and they're easy to read and written from a Christian perspective. 
And you can find these things online, and there's also a distribution center in, down in South Edmonds, just off of Highway 99. It's, it's a neat place. Lots of these, lots of different ones. If you really want to know more about what God is doing in the world and how he's building his church, look into taking the class Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. This is the textbook for that. I've talked about this before. Come and talk to me later if you're you're interested. Verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. That's my, you know, voice that, eh, never mind. (laughs) The, The Pharisees, these were the Pharisees. We've heard of them before. They were the legalistic branch of Jews that followed the laws passed down by their oral traditions. Jesus had a lot to say about them, mostly negative. But these Pharisees were now believers in Christ. To where it says, Pharisees who had believed, the Greek word translated, who had believed, is pepistukotes. And in this form, it means that they have believed and their lives have been changed. These weren't just some outsiders trying to mess with the Christians and to get them to go back to being Jewish. These were true believers who misunderstood the gospel. Another way to look at these Christians is to see that Although they were believers in Christ, they confused their Jewish culture with what it meant to be a Christian. This kind of thing happens today all the time. As Americans, we think church in other countries should look like it does here. Meeting in special buildings Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, sitting in rows, singing a few songs, listening to a 30-minute message, then going home. But church doesn't need to look like that. That's just what our culture has made it look like. If you've ever visited a church in a different culture, chances are it looks quite different. And that's okay. The truth of the gospel does not change. My third point is crossing cultural boundaries with the gospel can be difficult. One of the mistakes that missionaries have made in the past is to try to make the church in the culture they're sent to look like the the church and the culture that they came from. They would live in missionary compounds, separating the new believers from the rest of the culture. They did this because they felt the foreign culture was evil and wrong. The culture may have had evil aspects to it, but probably no more than the culture we live in here. The truth is we usually resist change, and they were the missionaries were resisting change too. A missionary in the 1800s that recognized the difficulty in crossing cultural boundaries was Hudson Taylor. He's another one of these guys. Here's his bio- that's his biography. He was a missionary to China. One of the things he did to help get the gospel across a cultural boundary was to dress like other Chinese instead of like a Westerner. He also grew his hair long into a ponytail called a queue. These might sound like obvious or minor things to us, but to the other missionaries, it was scandalous. What's he doing? But if you read his story, you'll see how successful he was in bringing the good news to the people of China. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. So clearly Peter is older and wiser here. You know that in his younger days he would have jumped into the fray right away. But he waited. And what he's talking about is when he went to Cornelius the centurion's house and shared the gospel with him and his family and friends. That was back in Acts chapter 10. It was more than 10 years before. So verse 8, Peter continues, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. I love this word, in God who knows the heart. It's a one Greek word, cardiogenostes. You recognize cardio as heart and gnosis is knowledge. God is the heart knower. God knows what I think and feel in my heart. And he loves me anyway. That's, that's an awesome fact. For Samuel 16, 7, um, God is speaking to Samuel about Saul. And he says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Psalm forty four twenty one, God knows the secrets of the heart. And so remember the incident that Peter's talking about. This is back in Acts 10, verse 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, all the Jews who came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. That's what, that's what Peter's referring to. So, verse 9, and, and, God, and he, God, made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Just like Paul would write later in Romans 10.12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. And Colossians 3.11, I have renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. And so here's something to note about these verses. Uh, giving them the Holy Spirit in verse 8 and cleansing their hearts by faith in verse 9 are two things that happened at the same time simultaneously. The moment they believed... They received the Holy Spirit and they were born again. Just like Peter had been. Just like you have been if you have trusted Christ. Verse 10, Peter speaking, still speaking. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Putting God to the test, that sounds bad. Remember Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts 5? They tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. It did not go well for them. <laughs> Acts 5.9, Peter said to Sapphira, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Ouch. That was harsh. So back in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. 
The yoke that Peter's talking about is literally a harness for oxen. But what he means by it is the burden of living by the law. It was a common Jewish metaphor. But following all the law, all the rules, all the time, never sinning, is not only difficult, it's impossible. Right? That's why we need Jesus. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has a better yoke for us. Matthew, 18, Matthew, sorry, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 11, Peter winds up, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way as they also are. We can only be saved by God's grace. And notice how Peter turns it around. We, are, we, the Jews, are saved as they are, the Gentiles. We're all saved the same way. And that's my f- fourth point. God's unmerited favor, His grace, that's what grace means, saves all who believe the gospel. I, I mentioned earlier Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And another verse, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. These verses are worth memorizing if you haven't before. And finally, verse 12 all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Barnabas and Paul got to do another extended missions moment. God gets the glory. That's the best part. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in our lives and the lives of people throughout the world. I thank you when we get to hear about it. I thank you that you've saved us by your grace um, and not by stuff we have to do. We don't have to become Jewish. We don't have to become Israeli. Um, You take us as we are if we believe in you. Thank you for your word this morning. Please bring it to our remembrance this week as we live our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.